Section 27 of Great Ghost Stories by Joseph Lewis French. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 27. Claremond, Part 2. Next morning, Serapion came to take me away. Two mules freighted with our miserable valises awaited us at the gate. He mounted one and I the other as well as I knew how. As we passed along the streets of the city, I gazed attentively at all the windows and balconies in the hope of seeing Claremond, but it was yet early in the morning, and the city had hardly opened its eyes. Mine sought to penetrate the blinds and window curtains of all the palaces before which we were passing. Serapion doubtless attributed this curiosity to my admiration of the architecture, for he slackened the pace of his animal in order to give me time to look around me. At last we passed the city gates and commenced to mount the hill beyond. When we arrived at its summit, I turned to take a last look at the place where Claremond dwelt. The shadow of a great cloud hung over all the city, the contrasting colors of its blue and red roofs were lost in the uniform half-tint, through which here and there floated upward, like white flakes of foam, the smoke of freshly kindled fires. By a singular optical effect, one edifice, which surpassed in height all the neighboring buildings that were still dimly veiled by the vapors, towered up fair and lustrous, with the gilding of a solitary beam of sunlight. Although actually more than a league away, it seemed quite near. The smallest details of its architecture were plainly distinguishable. The turrets, the platform, the window casements, and even the swallow-tailed weather vanes. "'What is that place I see over there, all lighted up by the sun?' I asked Serapion. He shaded his eyes with his hand, and having looked in the direction indicated, replied, It is the ancient palace which the Prince Concini has given to the courtesan Clermond. Awful things are done there. At that instant, I know not yet whether it was a reality or an illusion. I fancied I saw gliding along the terrace a shapely white figure, which gleamed for a moment in passing, and as quickly vanished. It was Claremond. Oh, did she know that at that very hour, all feverish and restless, from the height of the rugged road which separated me from her, and which, alas, I could never more descend, I was directing my eyes upon the palace where she dwelt, and which a mocking beam of sunlight seemed to bring nigh to me, as though inviting me to enter therein as its lord. Undoubtedly she must have known it, for her soul was too sympathetically united with mine not to have felt its least emotional thrill, and that subtle sympathy it must have been which prompted her to climb— although clad only in her night-dress, to the summit of the terrace, amid the icy dews of the morning. 
The shadow gained the palace, and the scene became to the eye only a motionless ocean of roofs and gables, amid which one mountainous undulation was distinctly visible. Serapion urged his mule forward, my own at once followed at the same gate, and a sharp angle in the road at last hid the city of S forever from my eyes, as I was destined never to return thither. At the close of a weary three days' journey through dismal country fields, we caught sight of the cock upon the steeple of the church which I was to take charge of, peeping above the trees, and after having followed some winding roads fringed with thatched cottages and little gardens, we found ourselves in front of the façade, which certainly possessed few features of magnificence. A porch ornamented with some mouldings, and two or three pillars rudely hewn from sandstone, a tiled roof with counterforts of the same sandstone as the pillars, that was all. To the left lay the cemetery, overgrown with high weeds, and having a great iron cross rising up in its center. To the right stood the presbytery, under the shadow of the church. It was a house of the most extreme simplicity and frigid cleanliness. We entered the enclosure. A few chickens were picking up some oats scattered upon the ground accustomed seemingly to the black habit of ecclesiastics they showed no fear of our presence and scarcely troubled themselves to get out of the way a hoarse wheezy barking fell upon our ears and we saw an aged dog running towards us it was my predecessor's dog he had dull bleared eyes grizzled hair and every mark of the greatest age to which a dog can possibly attain. I patted him gently, and he proceeded at once to march along beside me with an air of satisfaction unspeakable. A very old woman, who had been the housekeeper of the former curé, also came to meet us, and after having invited me into a little back parlor, asked whether I intended to retain her. I replied that I would take care of her, and the dog, and the chickens, and all the furniture her master had bequeathed her at his death. At this she became fairly transported with joy, and the Abbe Serapion at once paid her the price which she asked for her little property. For a whole year I fulfilled all the duties of my calling with the most scrupulous exactitude, praying and fasting, exhorting and lending ghostly aid to the sick, and bestowing alms even to the extent of frequently depriving myself of the very necessities of life. But I felt a great aridness within me, and the sources of grace seemed closed against me. I never found that happiness which should spring from the fulfillment of a holy mission. My thoughts were far away, and the words of Claremond were ever upon my lips like an involuntary refrain. Oh, brother, meditate well on this. Through having but once lifted my eyes to look upon a woman, through one fault apparently so venial, 
I have for years remained a victim to the most miserable agonies, and the happiness of my life has been destroyed forever. I will not longer dwell upon these defeats, or on those inward victories invariably followed by yet more terrible falls, but will at once proceed to the facts of my story. One night my doorbell was long and violently rung. The aged housekeeper arose and opened to the stranger, and the figure of a man whose complexion was deeply bronzed, and who was richly clad in a foreign costume, with a poniard at his girdle, appeared under the rays of Barbara's lantern. Her first impulse was one of terror, but the stranger reassured her, and stated that he desired to see me at once on matters relating to my holy calling. Barbara invited him upstairs, where I was on the point of retiring. The stranger told me that his mistress, a very noble lady, was lying at the point of death, and desired to see a priest. I replied that I was prepared to follow him, took with me the sacred articles necessary for extreme unction, and descended in all haste. Two horses, black as the night itself, stood without the gate, pawing the ground with impatience, and veiling their chests with long streams of smoky vapor exhaled from their nostrils. He held the stirrup and aided me to mount upon one. Then, Merely laying his hand upon the pummel of the saddle, he vaulted on the other, pressed the animal's sides with his knees, and loosened rein. The horse bounded forward with the velocity of an arrow. Mine, of which the stranger held the bridle, also started off at a swift gallop, keeping up with his companion. We devoured the road. The ground flowed backward beneath us in a long-streaked line of pale gray, and the black silhouettes of the trees seemed flying by us on either side like an army in rout. We passed through a forest so profoundly gloomy that I felt my flesh creep in the chill darkness with superstitious fear. The showers of bright sparks which flew from the stony road under the iron-shod feet of our horses remained glowing in our wake like a fiery trail. And had any one at that hour of the night beheld us both, my guide and myself, he must have taken us for two specters riding upon nightmares. Which fires ever and anon flitted across the road before us, and the night-birds shrieked fearsomely in the depth of the woods beyond, where we beheld at intervals glow the phosphorescent eyes of wildcats. The manes of the horses became more and more disheveled, the sweat streamed over their flanks, and their breath came through their nostrils hard and fast. But when he found them slacking pace, the guide reanimated them by uttering a strange, guttural, unearthly cry, and the gallop recommenced with fury. At last the whirlwind race ceased. A huge black mass pierced through with many bright points of light suddenly rose before us, 
the hoofs of our horses echoed louder upon a strong wooden drawbridge, and we rode under a great vaulted archway which darkly yawned between two enormous towers. Some great excitement evidently reigned in the castle. Servants with torches were crossing the courtyard in every direction, and above lights were ascending and descending from landing to landing. I obtained a confused glimpse of vast masses of architecture, columns, arcades, flights of steps, stairways, a royal voluptuousness and elfin magnificence of construction worthy of fairyland. A negro page, the same who had before brought me the tablet from Claremond, and whom I instantly recognized, approached to aid me in dismounting, and the major-domo, attired in black velvet with a gold chain about his neck, advanced to meet me, supporting himself upon an ivory cane. Large tears were falling from his eyes and streaming over his cheeks and white beard. Too late, he cried, sorrowfully shaking his venerable head. Too late, Sir Priest, but if you have not been able to save the soul, come at least to watch by the poor body. He took my arm and conducted me to the death chamber. I wept not less bitterly than he, for I had learned that the dead one was none other than that Claremond whom I had so deeply and so wildly loved. A pre-dieu stood at the foot of the bed. A bluish flame flickering in a bronze patera filled all the room with a wan, deceptive light, here and there, bringing out in the darkness at intervals some projection of furniture or cornice. In a chiseled urn upon the table there was a faded white rose, whose leaves, excepting one that still held, had all fallen, like odorous tears, to the foot of the vase. A broken black mask, a fan, and disguises of every variety which were lying on the armchairs bore witness that death had entered suddenly and unannounced into that sumptuous dwelling. Without daring to cast my eyes upon the bed, I knelt down and commenced to repeat the psalms for the dead with exceeding fervor, thanking God that he had placed the tomb between me and the memory of this woman, so that I might thereafter be able to utter her name in my prayers as a name forever sanctified by death. But my fervor gradually weakened, and I fell insensibly into a reverie. That chamber bore no semblance to a chamber of death. In lieu of the fetid and cadaverous odors which I had been accustomed to breathe during such funereal vigils, a languorous vapor of oriental perfume, I know not what amorous odor of woman, softly floated through the tepid air. That pale light seemed rather a twilight gloom contrived for voluptuous pleasure than a substitute for the yellow flickering watch-tapers which shine by the side of corpses. I thought upon the strange destiny which enabled me to meet Claremond again at the very moment when she was lost to me forever, 
and a sigh of regretful anguish escaped from my breast. Then it seemed to me that someone behind me had also sighed, and I turned round to look. It was only an echo. But in that moment my eyes fell upon the bed of death which they had till then avoided. The red damask curtains, decorated with large flowers worked in embroidery and looped up with gold bullion, permitted me to behold the fair dead, lying at full length, with hands joined upon her bosom. She was covered with a linen wrapping of dazzling whiteness, which formed a strong contrast with the gloomy purple of the hangings, and was of so fine a texture that it concealed nothing of her body's charming form, and allowed the eye to follow those beautiful outlines, undulating like the neck of a swan, which even death had not robbed of their supple grace. She seemed an alabaster statue executed by same skillful sculptor to place upon the tomb of a queen, or rather perhaps like a slumbering maiden over whom the silent snow had woven a spotless veil. I could no longer maintain my constrained attitude of prayer. The air of the alcove intoxicated me. That febrile perfume of half-faded roses penetrated my very brain, and I commenced to pace restlessly up and down the chamber, pausing at each turn before the bier to contemplate the graceful corpse lying beneath the transparency of its shroud. Wild fancies came thronging to my brain. I thought to myself that she might not, perhaps, be really dead that she might only have feigned death for the purpose of bringing me to her castle and then declaring her love at one time i even thought i saw her foot move under the whiteness of the coverings and slightly disarrange the long straight folds of the winding sheet and then i asked myself is this indeed claremonde what proof have i that it is she might not that black page have passed into the service of some other lady? Surely I must be going mad to torture and afflict myself thus. But my heart answered with a fierce throbbing, It is she, it is she indeed. I approached the bed again and fixed my eyes with redoubled attention upon the object of my incertitude. Ah, must I confess it? that exquisite perfection of bodily form although purified and made sacred by the shadow of death affected me more voluptuously than it should have done and that repose so closely resembled slumber that one might well have mistaken it for such i forgot that i had come there to perform a funereal ceremony I fancied myself a young bridegroom entering the chamber of the bride, who all modestly hides her fair face, and through coyness seeks to keep herself wholly veiled. Heartbroken with grief, yet wild with hope, shuddering at once with fear and pleasure, I bent over her and grasped the corner of the sheet. I lifted it back holding my breath all the while through fear of waking her. 
My arteries throbbed with such violence that I felt them hiss through my temples, and the sweat poured from my forehead in streams, as though I had lifted a mighty slab of marble. There, indeed, lay Claremond, even as I had seen her at the church on the day of my ordination. She was not less charming than then. With her, death seemed but a last coquetry. The pallor of her cheeks, the less brilliant carnation of her lips, her long eyelashes lowered and relieving their dark fringe against that white skin, lent her an unspeakably seductive aspect of melancholy, chastity, and mental suffering. Her long, loose hair, still intertwined with some little blue flowers, made a shining pillow for her head, and veiled the nudity of her shoulders with its thick ringlets. Her beautiful hands, purer, more diaphanous than the host, were crossed on her bosom in an attitude of pious rest and silent prayer, which served to counteract all that might have proven otherwise too alluring, even after death, in the exquisite roundness and ivory polish of her bare arms, from which the pearl bracelets had not yet been removed. I remained long in mute contemplation, and the more I gazed, the less could I persuade myself that life had really abandoned that beautiful body forever. I know not whether it was an illusion or a reflection of the lamplight, but it seemed to me that the blood was again commencing to circulate under that lifeless pallor, although she remained all motionless. I laid my hand lightly on her arm. It was cold, but not colder than her hand on the day when it touched mine at the portals of the church. I resumed my position, bending my face above her, and bathing her cheeks with the warm dew of my tears. Ah, what bitter feelings of despair and helplessness! What agonies unutterable did I endure in that long watch! vainly did i wish that i could have gathered all my life into one mass that i might give it all to her and breathe into her chill remains the flame which devoured me the night advanced and feeling the moment of eternal separation approach i could not deny myself the last sad sweet pleasure of imprinting a kiss upon the dead lips of her who had been my only love Oh, miracle! A faint breath mingled itself with my breath, and the mouth of Claremont responded to the passionate pressure of mine. Her eyes unclosed and lighted up with something of their former brilliancy. She uttered a long sigh and, uncrossing her arms, passed them around my neck with a look of ineffable delight. Ah! It is thou, Romole, she murmured in a voice languishingly sweet as the last vibrations of a harp. What ailed thee, dearest? I waited so long for thee that I am dead, but we are now betrothed. I can see thee and visit thee. Adieu, Romold, adieu. I love thee. 
that is all I wished to tell thee, and I give thee back the life which thy kiss for a moment recalled. We shall soon meet again. Her head fell back, but her arms yet encircled me as though to retain me still. A furious whirlwind suddenly burst in that window and entered the chamber. The last remaining leaf of the white rose for a moment palpitated at the extremity of the stalk like a butterfly's wing. Then it detached itself and flew forth through the open casement, bearing with it the soul of Claremond. The lamp was extinguished, and I fell insensible upon the bosom of the beautiful dead. End of section 27 Claremond, part 2